I want you to imagine this scene with me. Jesus is with his disciples. And Peter's been listening to Jesus share for several minutes now on faith, on sin, and on God's heart for restoration from sin. And Peter turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I still forgive him? Should I do it seven times? And Jesus answered Peter and said, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times. And then Jesus went in and began a story. And in just a few minutes, we're going to hear that story. But before we do, I want to share just a little bit of background about this teaching that was going on with Jesus. What is this chapter about? It's found in Matthew 18, if you want to open your Bibles to it. This parable is known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. So we're going to look at a little bit of that background this morning from Matthew chapter 18. Forgiveness is hard. Do you agree with that? Forgiveness is hard. And there's a direct correlation with forgiveness between something. Forgiveness is hard because sin is so painful. If sin was not painful, forgiveness wouldn't be that hard, right? I mean, it's, it's how painful sin is that makes forgiveness so difficult. In fact, there's a direct correlation between the difficulty of the pain and the difficulty of the forgiveness. The two are right there in sync. And so if it's not that painful, it's not as hard to forgive. For example, if someone steals $5 from me, I, I feel violated by that. That's, that. That doesn't feel right, but it's not that difficult for me to forgive a $5 theft. But if someone lies about me and costs my job, oh, that's really hard to forgive. That's very painful. Forgiveness is hard, and it's hard based on how difficult the pain is that we're experiencing, you know? And so when we look at forgiveness... What we are really looking at is, how do I go about dealing with this pain that sin causes me? That's really the question of forgiveness. And I want you to know that God has some really specific things that he prescribes. And I'm, I'm excited about going through Matthew 18. I want it there in front of you so that you can see it in the text. But I'm going to tell it more like a story, more like, more like a flow of what I see Jesus saying in this chapter. And I'm excited about what God has to teach us about faith and about sin and about restoration, but we have to start at understanding what forgiveness is if we're really going to understand what Jesus is teaching on forgiveness. And forgiveness is, is this really simple. Forgiveness is sending away my ill will and desiring God's best for the person who wounded me deeply. That's what forgiveness is. It's sending away. It's releasing them from my ill will. Isn't it natural? I mean, it's a very human response. When someone causes me great pain, my desire is what? That they would experience pain like I'm experiencing pain. And we call it all sorts of things. Sometimes we call it justice. I want justice. Sometimes maybe we want justice for real, but we call it justice. Sometimes we call it revenge. I just want to get back at them. I want to get even. But in the end, it's all really the same. It comes out of this same, this same place in us that when someone hurts me, 
in order for this to be right, they need to hurt too. That's how it works. So if they hurt me severely, they need to hurt severely. And as the person who's been wounded by their sin, it's very natural, it's very human for me to think about this and say, I'll never be satisfied until I know they've hurt me, uh, that they're hurting as much as they've hurt me. Unless I'm satisfied that how much they're hurting me is the same that they're feeling now in their own hurt, then I'll never be satisfied. And so forgiveness is about sending away that ill will. It's about understanding that this hurting me and my desire for them to hurt is something that I, I have to release. I have to send away that ill will. And not only that, there has to be a shift in my attitude. Not only do I send away my ill will, but I start to desire God's best for them. Isn't that incredible? Now, when Peter asked the question, how many times should I forgive? Jesus said, he said seven times, and so that you know, seven was a rounding up number. Seven was for them. So he kind of rounded up there to seven, thought that was a high number, and Jesus said 70 times, or you can also interpret it, sometimes in your Bible it'll say 70 times seven. It can be interpreted either way, but the literary effect that Jesus used in the Greek there was the equivalent of saying unlimited. What Jesus prescribed when it came to forgiveness was limitless forgiveness. So if my brother comes and he wounds me and it causes deep pain, I'm to forgive and send away my ill will towards my brother. And then if he comes back and does the same thing again, oh, that hurts more. And I'm to send it away again and to desire God's best for them. And then he comes back a third time and he does the same thing and it hurts even more. And God's prescription, what Jesus prescribed, is that I would send it away again. And then I get to seven times. And then I get to eight. And then I get to nine. And then I get to ten. And it never stops. No matter how many times they wound me, the prescription is that I would continue to forgive limitlessly. Now, when we think about the pain that sin can cause, and I, I know you can think right now about pain that you felt because of the sin of others. You can feel those emotions in you. When you think about that pain that sin causes, this sounds absurd. What a ridiculous prescription that Jesus would expect me to send away my ill will towards another person limitlessly? and always, always desire God's best for them, this sounds absurd. In order for us to grasp and understand why this is what Jesus prescribed, we've got to look at what Jesus was just teaching. We need to understand the scriptures. So look at Matthew 18 with me, and I'm gonna, you can follow along, but I'm just going to flow right through it, okay? So it starts with Jesus and his disciples are all together, and as they're hanging out together, the disciples have a question for Jesus. Jesus who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You remember this kind of question from the disciples? They think about this kind of thing a lot. This isn't the only time in the scriptures they're asking questions like this. And so they ask the question, Jesus, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds with something that would have shocked them. He takes from their midst, there's other people around, he calls a, a young child over to him. And, and now children in Jesus' culture 
I mean, they were dishonored, disrespected. This is not someone that you would say, oh, well, like we have kind of this loving tenderness towards children in our culture and, you know, this innocence and all. It, it, they were a liability. Children were a liability to them. And so for a child to be used as an example of anything, the disciples would expect that this child would be used as an example of something negative, not positive. But Jesus picks up this little child and he's holding this child and says to his disciples, he says, unless you become like one of these little ones, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, unless you become, and he gives away the key, what he's trying to say, unless you become humble like one of these little ones, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he starts talking about faith and humility. The disciples want to know who's going to be the greatest. Jesus wants them to understand it's going to be the least. It's going to be the person who is humble. This is such an important foundation for starting to talk about sin. Because unless we're humble, we can never agree with God when it comes to dealing with our sin. So Jesus has this child, and then he goes on and he says, not only do you need to be humble, but he says, whoever welcomes a little child like this welcomes me. So God's, Jesus is telling us, how do you get on the same side as God? How do you agree with God? Well, you welcome these little ones. You welcome the humble. You welcome the weak. You welcome those who are in need. You welcome them. And when you do, you agree with God. And so he's starting this whole thing. But then Jesus goes on on this discourse because he understands that his disciples need a greater understanding of the gravity of sin. Because they're asking about being the greatest, and they shouldn't even be asking that question because they should be understanding how severe their sin is. They should be in mourning about the condition of their soul because of their sin, and instead they're trying to figure out who can be the best. That's backwards thinking. That's reverse thinking. Jesus understood they needed, they needed to understand the severity of sin. So he goes on to this discourse, and he says, hey, if you welcome a child then you're welcoming me. But he says this, he says, but if you cause one of these little ones to sin, isn't that what sin does? I mean, my sin leads to the cause of other people's sin. I mean, what is bitterness? It's just that unforgiveness that keeps circling and spiraling, right? I'm holding on to my ill will. My sin causes them pain and leads them into sin. That's what our sin does. Sin breeds more sin every time. It always breeds death. It always breeds sin. It just keeps going, 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 going. And so, Jesus is helping them understand, if you welcome them, you're welcoming me, but if you cause one of these little ones to sin, woe to you. Oh, this is dangerous. I mean, he says, it would be better for you to die a painful, gruesome death than for you to cause one of these little ones to sin. There's a millstone. I have a picture of it up here. This is one in Capernaum, which is the hometown of Jesus, so uh, from Jesus' time period. So this is one that Jesus would have been around in that, in that time period. And he says, it would be better for you that a millstone, this massive stone, would be tied around your neck and you would be thrown into the sea than that you would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And what we need to understand here is this is not figurative. Jesus is not giving some kind of analogy. It would literally be better for you to die a gruesome death. It would be better for you that you would die a gruesome death than that you would be the cause of causing one of these little ones to stumble. And then he goes on and says the same thing. He says, hey, it would be better for you to be dismembered than for you to cause a little one to stumble. He talks about if your 
right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. What Jesus is trying to do here, he's not prescribing necessarily. I'm not saying that anyone should go dismember themselves. But what I'm saying is he's painting a vivid picture, a graphic picture of how bad sin is. It would be better that you die a gruesome death and be dismembered than that your whole body be cast into hell because of your sin. It would be better for you that that would happen. So he's helping them experience the weight, the weight of this sin. And he says temptation has to come into the world. It has to. He says temptation is sin and sin has to be in the world. But woe to the one by which it comes. Woe to the one by which it comes. So God's heart on sin is, whoo, heavy, heavy. Sin is much more serious than we make it. I mean, we, we take sin lightly. God never takes sin lightly. He's always, and he always sees. That's the next thing that, that it goes to in Matthew 18. He says, when you cause one of these little ones to stumble, their angels are always watching, and they're before the face of my Father. And, he's, and what this passage is saying is that God is always seeing. He, and Pastor Jerry talked about that, that he's all seen, all present, all the time. God's always seen. It's one of the wonders of God. Nothing escapes his notice. So when I cause, through my sin, someone else to sin and stumble, one of these weak ones, he never, ever misses it. He always sees it. He always notices. And the angels report it. They're always before the face of his father. So hopefully you're feeling it a little bit. The gravity of sin. I mean, sin causes pain to God. Sin causes pain to me. Sin causes pain to others. And when their sin causes me pain and it hurts deeply, my desire is ill will. Ill will, that I would wish harm on them because of how much it hurts. So that's what Jesus is building up here. He's showing the severity of pain, so, I mean sin, so that we can understand the severity of the pain and why it causes that. So then he goes on and he gives them a short little parable and illustration. And in this parable, he goes and talks about the sheep. You've probably heard this one before. That if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does the shepherd not leave the 99 and go search for the one? And when he does and he finds that one, he rejoices more and has greater joy over the one than the 99 who never left. And in this, what Jesus is showing is he's demonstrating God's heart in the midst of a sinful world. How does God respond to sin? Sin is so heavy. Sin is so deep. It causes so much pain. How does God respond to that? He goes after the little ones. He goes after the sinners. That's his heart. That's his nature. It's who he is. He is a forgiving God. He is full of relentless love, and he chases after us just like this shepherd. So if you want to be on God's bad side, hurt the little ones. Continue in your sin. That's, what, that's how you get on God's bad side. And when you do and you cause them to stumble, you are opposing God, and it's a fearful, dangerous thing. When you're in the middle of your sin and it's wounding other people, whew, that is a fearful and dangerous thing because you are on the wrong side with God. But if you want to be on the right side with God, consider the story of the shepherd. What should we do? Oh, we should go after the weak ones. We should go after the sinners. We should desire love and restoration. We should desire that our lives would reconcile people back to God and back to one another, right? That's what we should be all about. So, go after them. How do you go after them? 
That's the hard part, right? I mean, I can resolve in my heart to go after them, but how do I actually work about restoration? How do I go about that? And Jesus prescribes something here. It's commonly been called a passage called church discipline in the scripture. I think that's a terrible name for the passage. I don't think it fits at all what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. This is a passage about restoration and how we love someone who's overtaken in sin. How do we go about restoring people back to God and back to, back to others? What is our part when someone's sin is causing pain and we see it? How do we respond to that practically? And Jesus knows we need practical steps. This is not something that I'm good at figuring out on my own. If Jesus didn't tell me exactly what to do, he tells me exactly what to do, and I still get it wrong a lot of the time when I'm trying to resolve conflict the biblical way. And so Jesus knew we need to know exactly what to do. So what do we do? When someone sins hurting me, what do I do about it? Well, the first thing I need to do is I need to go to my brother. That's what he says here in Matthew 18. You go straight to them, you and them alone, and you share what the sin was, and if they hear you, you've gained your brother. The end. They've heard you. They've repented. They're sorry. You forgive your brother. You move on. Okay? If they don't hear you, if there's disagreement, you know, there can be all sorts of reasons why you don't connect right in that first meeting. Then you go and you get a witness. The point of the witness is not so that you can prove your point and judge them and show them how bad of a person they are. The point of the witness is so that every word may be established so that the truth can be discerned. And once the truth is discerned, then if I need to adjust, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm carrying this offense, but really I shouldn't have the offense. The witness can help resolve that based on the truth. And, and oh, okay, it's actually me. It's not you, it's me. I have, the, I have the offense and I shouldn't have this offense. You didn't really do anything wrong. Or it could be on the other side. Maybe they did do something wrong and they don't see it and the witness is supposed to help them see it. And so you bring the witness and you try to work it out. And if they hear you, you've gained your brother. Mission accomplished. The goal is love. The goal is restoration. But if they don't hear you, then you take it to the church. And in our church, that would be our church leadership. You would get our church leadership involved in helping. And you would still try to work towards restoration. And if they still don't repent and they're in the wrong, and they still don't repent, then Jesus said you need to treat them like an outsider. Now, we know that Jesus didn't mean that they should forever be excommunicated from the church and banned. Okay, but that they should be released for a season. How do we know that? Because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with this very issue. There's a man who's overtaken in a very gross, very grievous sin in the church, and Paul says, you're all rejoicing. What? Where's the severity of sin, right? I mean, the tendency is sometimes we overlook the severity of sin, but Paul's saying, no, what this man is doing is super severe. You guys are all fine about it, and you should be lamenting over it. You should be very concerned over it. He's, Paul says, I've already judged the person who's in this sin, who's been doing this thing, and I've already exercised my judgment from a distance. And he says, you need to release that person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that in the day of judgment his soul might be saved. Once again, it'd be better for you to experience physical harm and your soul be saved than for you to be okay physically and for you to face the consequences of the severity of your sin. That's the picture that's being painted here. And then we know in 2 Corinthians that after this man repented, what Paul did is he said, welcome him back and don't shame him. He's been through enough shame. He's understood his sin. He feels the weight of that. Don't shame him anymore. Welcome him back as a brother. So again, you see it in the scriptures. It's not judgment, judgment, judgment for the sake of judgment. I mean, God is just and he is the judge and he will rightly judge every person one day. We will all stand before the judgment throne of God. Every injustice will be righted by God, period. He will right every single one. But I'm not the judge. 
My job is to do what God's done for me with other people. I was under judgment and God helped me get out from under it. My job is to help other people get out from under it. Get out from under judgment. And God's made a way for us to get out from under judgment and that way is Jesus. And we'll, t- we'll tell the gospel here to close this and you need to receive Jesus otherwise you're under judgment if you haven't received him. So that's the steps. Go to your brother, bring a witness, go to the church and then don't associate with them so that he'll repent so that you can welcome him back in. Okay, that's the, that's the biblical prescription. Now what Jesus was talking about here this is the confusion. What Jesus was talking about here was restoration. He was talking about how do you restore a brother who's overtaken in sin? And now we're back to the question. Peter made a mistake that I have made that I think all of us in this room have made because Jesus was talking about restoration. How do you restore your brother? And what Peter asked about was forgiveness and they're not the same thing. Jesus had just explained three steps for restoring your brother. But the thing with those three steps, we even saw it in Jesus' example, is that restoration is at least a two-sided process. Sometimes there's even more parties involved than two. I can't control restoration. All I can do is do my part in restoration. But I can't fix it. I just have to cooperate with God. Chase after the sinner. Do my best to resolve the conflict biblically. But I may do all the right steps and the relationship never be restored. I may do all the right steps, and I may, trust may never be restored again. I may do all the right steps, and I may experience consequences, probably will experience consequences from their sin for the rest of my life. I may do all the right steps, and they may still experience consequences for their sin for the rest of their lives. I can't restore it. I can't fix it. Sin is not within my control to fix. I, I'm not responsible for restoration. I'm resp- responsible for my part in restoration. That's all I'm responsible for. But Peter confused it because the very next question after Jesus explained restoration, Peter came back and said, how many times should I forgive? Oh, Peter, that's a different issue. Peter, that's a different issue. Forgiveness is one-sided. It can happen right now between you and God. All you have to do is release your ill will towards the other person and want God's best for them. Not desire them to suffer because they made you suffer, but release it, send it away. And when you do that, you've forgiven. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to ask your forgiveness. They don't have to take any steps towards reconciliation. You can forgive them right now on the spot for the pain they've caused you. And that's why when, when Peter asked, should I forgive seven times, Jesus said, no, limitless. You should forgive unlimited because you can forgive unlimitedly, but it's still absurd at least at this point in Peter's mind, it's still absurd that that much pain would be dismissed over and over again, and now we get to the story. And it's a short story, but it's a powerful story. And you understand that parables only have one big point. It's like a good joke. A joke doesn't have multiple points and subpoints, and then you have to decipher the joke to get the, uh, get the idea. If you deliver a joke well, the response is right there, right? Laughter. That's the response of a good joke. You, you set it up, you give the punchline, and everyone laughs. That's a good joke. A parable is the same way, except the goal isn't laughter. The goal is to understand a spiritual reality. And so we don't take the parable and slice it up into all these little parts and try to draw all these analogies from it. We hear the parable, we hear the punchline, and then it impacts our soul. The punchline does, okay? So here's the parable that Jesus told, and I'm going to tell it for you in... American terms, 
okay? Because the parable that Jesus told, and I'm going to explain the parable because the parable Jesus told, his disciples would have got it right off. They understood what a denarii was. They understood what a talent was. It just rolled right onto them. We don't know all these things, so I'm going to explain it to you as we tell the parable. But it goes like this. There was once this king, and he had many people who owed him debts. And so he started settling the accounts between him and those who owed him. And he called one guy in, this servant. And when he called the servant in, he realized that this guy owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, I realize that didn't mean much to you. So let's try this. Okay, 10,000 talents. What is 10,000 talents? Well, one denarii was a day's labor. Okay, it would take somewhere in the ballpark of 6,000 denarii to make a talent. King Herod was paid 900 talents as his salary for one year. King Herod the Great, King Herod the Great, received 900 talents as a yearly salary. Most guys received one denarii. That's a common wage of labor. Remember the social economical distance. We, they didn't have middle class like we do. You were either very rich or very poor, okay? So this is, we're talking about absurd amount of money. 10,000 was the highest counting unit in the Greek at that time. 10,000 was the highest. A talent was the highest currency that anyone could receive in, in one unit. So that you receive a talent, it was the most you could get in one setting. So to say 10,000 talents had the same literary effect as someone telling you something like zillions and zillions, okay? He owed him a ton of money. 10,000 talents was government-level transactions, this was not civilian-level transactions. 10,000 talents was about the amount of money when Egypt came up and plundered the temple, um, and they took stuff from the temple. Um, they stole about 10,000 talents worth of stuff. I mean, beyond comprehension. In today's terms, multi-million, possibly over a billion dollars. We're talking about a massive, massive debt. In fact, the disciples would have immediately felt that it was absurd that anyone would owe anyone that much money. That's how they would have felt, okay? So then he says he owed 10,000 talents, and he said, oh, I can't pay it. Please have mercy on me. Be patient. Give me time. And then he says, and I will repay you what I owe you. Ha! Ha! Like you're ever going to repay 10,000 talents. Everyone knew it. The king knew it. I mean, and so he says, well, we're going to sell he says, the king says, well, then I'm just going to sell you as a slave to help pay off the debt. Guys, that wouldn't have come close. A, a, a slave went for like 2,000 to 5,000 denarii. I mean, this was nothing. I mean, if he, he said, we're going to sell you and your family. It wouldn't have even come close to covering the debt. And so the, the, the servant fell down and said, have mercy on me. Be patient, and I'll repay everything I owe. And you know, the, the king, he was moved with such compassion, knowing that the, the guy could never repay it. He just said, you know what? It's forgiven. It's forgiven. Go your way. Your record's clear. He cleared the record. He sent away. I mean, talk about filling some ill will. Someone owes you that kind of money and they don't ever pay you back. You're going to fill some ill will. He released him of the ill will. He sent him away. He, he cleared the record. That servant, at the very same time, went immediately and found another fellow servant. This was not his subordinate. This was just another guy on his same level. But the only difference was this guy owed him some money. But this guy owed him, I can't remember how much. It just slipped my mind. 100 denarii, thank you. He owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii, that's 100 days work. I mean, it's not a small amount 
think about it, 100 days work, you know, that's about third quarter of a year's salary. I mean, that's several months of income. That's not a small amount. I mean, if someone owed me that kind of money, I would want to get paid. But it wasn't absurd like this other guy owed. And when the forgiven servant found the guy who owed him money, he took him by the neck and he choked him and said, pay me what you owe me. And the guy said the same words. You can read it. It's the exact same words. He fell down on his knees and he said, have patience with me. And if you will, I'll, I'll repay you everything I owed you. The difference here is the guy could have repaid him. He could have. It wasn't, I mean, it was a lot, but it wasn't, it wasn't absurd. So he fell down on his knees and said, have patience with me. And the forgiven servant said no and had him thrown into jail. Guys, that was like a life sentence. When you have someone thrown into jail that owes you that kind of money and they can't work to make money, it's basically a life sentence if you throw them in jail until it's repaid. So he sends them off to a life sentence in jail over 100 denarii. Talk about wanting to make someone else hurt. Well, some, some servants of the king witnessed what had happened and they went back and the scriptures say they didn't just talk to the king about it in passing. They explained in detail their plight against this forgiven servant. They saw how ridiculous it was that that servant wouldn't forgive this other small debt. And when the king heard it, he was enraged. And he had that servant brought before him and he said, I forgave you such a large debt. Could you not forgive your brother this small amount of money? He said, you wicked servant. Get, hand him over to the torturers and let him go from my sight. He will stay until his debt is paid in full. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, so will my heavenly father do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now the point of the parable is this, it, one big point, forgiven people forgive. That's the point of the parable. Forgiven people forget. In fact, it sounds absurd when Jesus says 70 times 7, limitless forgiveness. But when you understand the great debt that you owed God because of your sin, it's absurd to not forgive your brother. Yes, it's painful. A hundred denarii isn't a small amount. But when you compare it, it's a 600,000 ratio to one what that was the difference there in that amount. When you consider what the massive amount that you owe God that you can never repay and what he forgave you to forgive your brother, it's absurd not to. And that's the point of the story. The disciples would have been sitting there scratching their heads saying, why didn't that guy forgive? And that's exactly how God wants us to think about this. Why in the world would we not forgive? Here's why we wouldn't forgive because we don't understand the forgiveness we've been given. And that's the awesome wonder of God. That when our debt was so massive because of my sin, when I owed God a debt that I could never repay, when I was a wicked servant and he brought me before himself and I pleaded my case, able to do nothing to deliver myself from the wrong that I had done, he released me of my debt and forgave it in full. And if you understand the debt that God has forgiven you, it gives you all the grace you need to forgive others, no matter how many times it hurts you, Amen. no matter what it costs you. So the question is, have you ever received that kind of forgiveness? If you haven't, you don't have the power that you need to forgive. 
You can't forgive. You want to forgive, maybe, but you can't let it go. You're going to have to know that forgiveness from God before it's even possible for you to forgive someone else. So the first question I have for you this morning is, have you ever been forgiven? Have you truly ever been forgiven? Do you know that your sin is severe? And have you trusted Jesus to forgive it? You know, the Bible says we deserve to bear God's wrath for our sin. Pastor Jerry talked about it last week. His righteousness is great, but I'm excited to tell you that his mercy is greater. He loves to deliver us from our debts, from our sins, from his judgment. And you know how he did it? He poured it all, all out on Jesus. He sent in Jesus so that the full wrath of God could be poured out on him until it was satisfied, until it was enough. Not just to die, but to suffer a severely painful death because his pain is enough to cover your pain. He bore it all. So if you'll just trust him, he'll bore your pain, bear your pain from the sin others have caused you. If you'll just trust him, he'll bear your forgiveness, what you owe God, the whole weight. It'll be taken and paid in full. Pretty incredible. And then you'll have the power to forgive. Yep. And then you'll be able. Now, to forgive is to release the ill will, but it doesn't mean to fix it. And I want you to know that there's some things that some people have done to us that are so severe that it can't just be resolved. It can, the first step is always forgiveness. We always need to resolve forgiveness. But after we resolve forgiveness, it doesn't resolve the whole problem. And so sometimes you need, if the, if the sin is severe and it's a gross sin and it's really impacted you, you need the help of other people to sort through the reconciliation process. And I just want you to know, I've talked with Scott and Renee Sanders and they would be glad to be our triage counselors after a message like this. If someone has wounded you deeply and has caused you severe pain, the first thing you need to do is receive God's forgiveness and forgive them and dismiss the ill will. But you may need some help on how you need to relate to them. Yeah. What does this look like moving forward? How do you not enable them in their sin? How do you help them overcome their sin? What's your part in this process? I can tell you to forgive from a pulpit, but I can't tell you in your details and your circumstance how to go about restoration other than say it's going to follow the general guideline that Jesus gave. But other than that, you need some more help. So forgive now, but then make a plan. Could you guys just raise your hand so they can identify you? Right here, Scott and Renee. You need to go right after the service. In fact, I may ask them just to come forward in the prayer time and just tell them, I need to talk to you about something and I need some direction. And they're not going to be the best long-term solution for you, but they're going to be able to help point you to the right direction. So have that in mind, but it all starts with forgiveness. It all starts with releasing the ill will that you have and letting God cover that pain. Are you willing to do it? Let's bow for prayer. There is somebody in here that needs to forgive. There is somebody in here that needs to forgive. And there's somebody in here that needs to be forgiven. Let's start with the needs to be forgiven. Have you ever experienced truly God's forgiveness for your sin? If you haven't experienced it, you can experience it right now. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. He will forgive. All you need to do right now is say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. If you'll say that, he'll forgive your sins, and you can start an incredible journey of what it looks like to walk with God, to believe the truth about becoming a new person 
And I don't mean that figuratively. God will make you a new person spiritually. He'll give you a new birth and a new life. And you can learn to walk that out with other people. It's incredible. But it starts with, Jesus, forgive me. So would you just say it to the Lord right now? If you need to be forgiven, just say, Jesus, forgive me. And if anyone's saying that right now, would you just raise your hand as an outward sign saying, I'm saying it, Jesus, forgive me. Amen, amen, amen. Now, do you need to forgive someone else? The pain can run deep. It may have been part of your life for years. But you can release it if you've been forgiven. In fact, it'd be absurd not to in light of how much you've been forgiven. So right now, would you just tell the Lord, God, help me release my ill will towards this person who caused me so much pain. I want to desire your best for them. If you're saying that right now, would you just raise your hand and say, that's what I'm saying right now. God, help me forgive them. Help me forgive them. Amen. Amen. Now, some of you that just raised your hand may need to talk to Scott and Renee. I encourage you to do it. And some of you that raised your hand on, talking, uh, on re- receiving that forgiveness, Steve Harris just talked earlier about the gospel, and he's going to want to talk to you again if you want that to happen. But before we do that, I want to ask you just to look up here for our prayer. I think there's power in corporate worship and prayer. There's a song that we're going to sing, and this song is real simple. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more.